fancy meeting you here, fellow humans. It is quite the night for a walk. I do hope you have brought your umbrella. Me? Oh, I never minded a bit of rain. You know, my grandmother used to say that a little rain can cleanse the soul. Therefore, trust not the man who doesn't stand in a little rain to get where he needs to go. Wait. That wasn't my grandmother. I think I read that in a choose-your-own-adventure book. Anywho, I was wondering when I'd see you again. Welcome back to ASM Murder, the only true crime podcast with an ASMR twist. If this is your first time around, let me take a moment to personally welcome you to come and walk with us while we spin stunning and severe scripture. We discuss this and that while the wind blows the tales that only we know and whisper them at night when no one is around to hear the sound of the stories that we did tell. In other words, fellow humans, we are here to unfold the mysteries of the past. Anyway, I'm glad you're here and I hope you enjoy your stay. Oh, how rude of me. I forgot to introduce myself. I am your humble host, The Guru, and while I might not be the host with the most, I am a host that has a lot. A lot of what, I hear you ask? What a devilishly determined question, young barstool. Artful use of words can be complex, and the complex use of words as art can be used to open doors to the imagination. Now, you might say, what does this have to do with what we'll talk about, Gru, you dandy, daring, dazzling dude? Let's walk on, fellow humans, and I'll tell you. Today's episode is number 19, an auspicious number if you know you're Stephen King. And I won't lie, I chose this particular case based solely on the name of the killer. A righteous name. One that tells those that care to listen that he means business. Fear and recoil and horror from... The Doodler. Hmm. That sounded different in my head. Anyway, the more I looked into this, the more I simply had to know more about the Doodler. The art behind his murders. The way they were so sketchy. I was drawn to them and wanted to know all about the design of it all. Okay, I'll stop. So let us walk now, fellow humans. Oh, one more. I wanted to know how he didn't leave a trace. Okay, now I'll stop. Oh, and bundle up, fellow human. The wind can cut like a knife. Content warning. Today's episode contains graphic content not suitable for some audiences, which include mentions about death and physical abuse, mentions about sexual themes, descriptions of crime scenes and the state of dead bodies, and mentions of homophobia. Listener discretion is therefore advised. Doodler, doodler, what did he doodle? Well, his victims, of course, which he attacked and killed from January 1974 to September 1975. These killings started in a suspiciously coincidental time, as only a year had passed since the American Psychiatric Association Board of Trustees stopped classifying homosexuality as a mental disorder. As an illness, in other words. News outlets contributed to making this case go under the radar, probably not even considering covering the murders of homosexuals. We can't know for sure, but what I am sure of is that this is probably the first time that many of you are hearing about the doodler. And it's no surprise. 
Police focused on bigger cases such as the Zodiac Killer, even though they had similar body counts, but the media chose to cover other crimes instead. He was known as the Black Doodler, and he focused on assaulting men in San Francisco, California. He met his victims at gay nightclubs, bars, and restaurants, sketching them prior to their sexual encounters just to stab them afterwards. A classy fellow. Anyway, he tended to frequent the Kester and Pulp Gulch areas, stalking people as a predator would stalk its prey. He had a tendency to abandon his victims' bodies at water parks and waterfronts. It was said that he wooed his victims by picking up a man, sketching him, and showing the doodle to the guy. He killed between 6 to 16 people, but people were only able to connect these dots due to how often homosexual men were killed, so there's only 5 or 6 confirmed victims. Three men survived his attacks, but they didn't want to testify to not out themselves as homosexuals. This means coming out of the closet or, well, publicly stating their sexual orientations. Keep in mind that this was the 70s. It was a groovy time, if you weren't gay, that is. Being gay was extremely dangerous back then. Hell, San Francisco wasn't even gay-friendly yet. It was a very different time, in other words. So, this murderer was described as a young black man, between 19 and 25 years old, and he was about 6 feet tall and had a slender build. At first, authorities believed that there could have been as many as three attackers at the same time, but this was never confirmed. All of the victims were white men and several of them were stabbed in the back in front of their bodies, almost in the same place. Police believe that the men died shortly after their encounter with the killer where their bodies were found. Now, who were these victims? Well, I'll tell you about the confirmed ones, but again, as I stated, there could have been as many as 16, just not confirmed. Let's start with Gerald Earl Cavanaugh. He was a Canadian-American immigrant, and it is said that he was the doodler's first victim. He was 49 when he died due to being stabbed many times, and his fully clothed body was found very early in the evening of January 24, 1974 at 1.57 a.m. Cavanaugh was face up on Ocean Beach in San Francisco, California, and he had died mere hours before being found. It was determined that he was conscious when he was killed, and he actually tried to fight back, or so his self-defense wounds would say. At first, his identity was unknown, and he was nicknamed John Doe Number 7. Cavanaugh was a single man, and there is little information about his personal life. Oh, and he was discovered with $21 in his pockets. The few details that are known about this man are that he used to work at a mattress factory. He was Catholic, and he was starting to go bald. The second victim is Joseph J. Stevens, who was discovered on June 25, 1974, by a woman walking along Sprinkles Lake in San Francisco. She found him near some bushes. He was 27 when he had died, shortly before his body had been discovered. Stevens was seen at a club just the night before, specifically the Cabaret Club on Montgomery Street in the North Beach neighborhood. He worked as a comedian and a female impersonator. Police suspected that he was alive when he had been around Sprinkles Lake, probably accompanied by the perpetrator. Stevens was stabbed three times and there was blood on his nose and mouth. Now, it's time to talk about Klaus Kreisman, a German-American immigrant 
discovered by a woman who was walking her dog July 7, 1974. Christman was an employee of Michelin, and he was last seen alive at Bojangles, a black-owned transgender club, very ahead of his time in several ways. The woman said that her dog, Moondance, had run off, and so she followed until she found the corpse. He was found at Ocean Beach in San Francisco, similar to how Gerald Cavanaugh had been found. His death had been more violent than the previous ones, based on the many stab wounds in his slashed throat. To be more specific, Chrysler was stabbed at least 15 times, and his throat had been slashed in three different places. Christman was closed, and unlike his previous victims, he was married and had children. He had been staying with his friends, Mr. and Mrs. Booker Williams, and had been in the city for three months before falling to his dreadful fate. What made police suspect that he was gay was that he had a makeup tube on him. Despite all the logical explanations for having a makeup tube in your pocket, the police decided to go with, he must be gay. Again, far-fetched nowadays, but back then... Anyway, there's not much to tell you about Christman, honestly, apart from that he was not identified while the police investigated the cases. That made them believe that they had a connection after a third murder. He was buried in his native country of Germany. Now that authorities started to find connections, there was a report about this, which read, Police are aware of the similarities between the murder of Mr. Christman and the stabbing of Gerald Cavanaugh last January. There also appear to be similarities between these two stabbings and the murder of Jay Stevens, whose body was found stabbed front and back at Stowe Lake on June 25th, and all apparently involved the victim meeting someone who suggested driving to a remote area such as the beach or Golden State Park. All three were viciously stabbed front and back. All three were stripped of identification and property. I think that it's good they didn't confirm it directly, not until more evidence appeared. It doesn't feel too solid to suspect the existence of a serial killer based on almost nothing. Don't you think, fellow humans? Now, who's the fourth victim? Well, Frederick Capen. That's it. He was 32 when he was killed and his body was found by a hiker May 12, 1975 in San Francisco behind a sand dune between Vicente and Lola Streets. He had been stabbed like the other men and had died because his aorta was sliced many times and it is believed that his corpse was moved around 20 feet as the sand near his body was moved. Capon was identified thanks to his fingerprints which were matched with the ones taken by the state as he worked as a nurse. He also served in the Navy and earned a couple of medals while serving in the Vietnam War. And there was Harold Goldberg, a 66-year-old Swedish-American immigrant who was discovered June 4, 1975, as his body decomposed two weeks after he died in Lincoln Park. He didn't have his underwear, his pants were unzipped, and he was older than the other victims, making authorities think that it's a bit inconsistent with the other victims. While he was unidentified, he was known as John Doe number 81. But wait, there's more. Just in January of this year, 2022, police authorities discovered the sixth confirmed victim of the doodler. Well, they confirmed that he had died by his hands. It was Warren Andrews, a lawyer for the U.S. Postal Service, who had been killed in Land's End in April 1975, and he was discovered by a hiker. He was 52 years old when he died, and he was beaten up so badly that those injuries were the cause of his death. Maybe new confirmed victims will appear. Only time will tell. 
Okay, you might ask yourself, was there no suspect of these cruel murders? Indeed there were, my fine fledgling fellow humans. A young man was considered a suspect in these crimes, but it was never confirmed and criminal charges were never brought against him. The fact that all the attacked men had been gay would be a quick way to oust oneself, and a quick way to both a social and possible physical death. Among the survivors were a known entertainer and a diplomat. Their reputation was at risk, and they didn't want to play with fire. They're the reason the authorities have some of the doodler sketches and even a description of him. This suspect cooperated with authorities when he was interviewed, but he never admitted to any kind of guilt. Police strongly believe that he was the artist behind these crimes, but he was never convicted. Nowadays, the suspect's identity is unknown, and there's barely any information about the crimes, to the public at least. The police think that he's still alive, in his 70s, living in the East Bay and possibly looking for more victims. Or perhaps he retired from all that. Perhaps he had grown tired of the knife. Who knows? He was interviewed by the authorities once again, but nothing about him has ever been found out. Two other suspects became the center of attention in 1977 after a pair of men were arrested in Riverside County, California and later questioned on suspicions of 28 murders that also took place after the doodler encounters, but nothing resulted from this. In 2018, Dan Cunningham, a San Francisco Police Department investigator, melted the ice off this cold case and warmed it up once again. The following year, he publicly said that he had sent DNA samples from two different crime scenes to be analyzed in a laboratory, saying that the authorities were beginning to connect the dots of this case. Sounds like a new turn. If there is anything updated, I will surely keep you posted, fellow humans. Now let's go back for a moment, shall we? When this case had just started to be talked about back in the 1970s, an activist talked publicly about feeling empathy with the victims who didn't want to talk to the police three men that didn't want to be outed. To quote, he said, I understand their position. I respect the pressure society has put on them. Honestly, nobody can blame them. Their safety was even more at risk than after the attack. Pretty recently, in May 2018, it was said by the authorities that the case is still being investigated by the San Francisco Police Department. With new DNA technologies, police decided to re-examine evidence to bring justice to all the victims. And in February 2019, authorities offered a $100,000 reward for information that could reveal the culprit, and they even made a sketch of how the murderer could look nowadays. This was doubled in January 2022, making the reward a juicy $200,000. Definitely some hefty cash. Authorities also announced that they would consider forensic genetic genealogy, which identified a suspect in the Golden State Killer murders, although the culprit from that case was never found. This case feels pretty alive. Warm, most definitely not cold. It feels warm because of the new evidence, yes, but also because of the fact that the doodler might still be alive. Maybe he rises every day at dawn, lights a smoke, stares out the window at the rising sun and wonders if he truly got away with it. Maybe he's still worried that he won't get away with it. Maybe when he stares into the sun, he hopes to bring blindness so that he doesn't have to see the spirits of those he's slain haunting him. Or maybe he's dead, rotting in the ground and no one will ever be the wiser. 
Well, it is about that time, fellow humans. We must part ways. We have come quite a ways, and though the wind is picking up, your destination is just over that hill. Remember, fellow humans, that not everything starts, but everything that does comes to an end. And this episode is no different. We must part ways for a while. In other words, you must go to your destination, and I must go to mine. Worry not, fellow humans, because I drop episodes every week, 6 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, more or less faithfully. However, stay just a minute longer. Do you have any stunning, salient, striking stories you would like to hear? Recondite tales that are rowdy, ruthless, or even rustic? Let me know with a comment in any of my socials, like my YouTube or my personal website. Remember to hit that bell to not miss any new content for my channel. That was episode 19 of ASM Murder. If you want to catch up on any episodes you missed, or if you just want to hear more of me in general, you can go to my website at murderpod.net. That's M-U-R-D-E-R-P-O-D.net. You can find my podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. I'll leave links in the description. If you enjoyed what you heard, I'd love to hear your thoughts or, well, read your comments anyway. Thank you for lending me your time. Time is precious and it's all just borrowed anyway, eh, fellow humans? Please know that I appreciate you so much for taking the time to walk with me, to share time, and to unfold these red velvet clad mysteries. Until next time, please be kind to yourselves, be good to each other. Take care. This is your friendly neighborhood crew. Signing off.